Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and you're listening to On Becoming. Today's episode is just a short pensée that continues the topic of bullying but moves the focus to alumni. Let's just start with a few basics. For better or for worse, the U.S. higher educational system, if we can call it that because it's not really a system per se, is one that receives only a certain level of support from state and federal governments. Obviously, state schools and community colleges receive support from the state and the local community. Many students who attend universities get grants or other forms of support from the government. The main point here is this. If you go to university in Europe, you'll pay very little because the universities are supported by the government. What's important about this is that it represents a really different way of funding educational institutions. Europeans think that a high school education is not sufficient unless they fund university education. The U.S. simply doesn't do this. Once you finish your 12th year of high school, you're on your own. While there are more or less expensive opportunities for higher education, the state simply doesn't cover it the way it covers kindergarten through 12th grade. It is this very important point that undergirds today's pensée. It's only because universities in the U.S. are funded in a certain way that this problem arises. The problem, and perhaps you've already guessed what it is from the title and the introduction, is that most of the funding of U.S. colleges and universities comes from donors. Yes, students and their parents pay large amounts in tuition at many colleges, but no, that's not even remotely enough to cover all of the expenses. Remember, I made the distinction between schools that are fundamentally tuition-driven and those that have endowments? Obviously, there's a sliding scale between being completely tuition-driven and having endowments, this would be on the other side, large enough that the student tuition is considerably less important. Never, of course, unimportant. Many schools find themselves somewhere between these two extremes. They are still very dependent on the inflow of tuition, but have funding to make up the difference between tuition dollars raised and actual expenses. But this means that universities are highly dependent upon donors. Today I'd like to focus on Bill Ackman, a billionaire that has decided to get involved in the politics of higher education. My comments will be based on a really good article by Elizabeth Dwoskin titled, How a Liberal Billionaire Became America's Leading Anti-DEI Crusader. I'm not going to focus on the DEI part in this episode. We'll be talking about that probably for at least a couple episodes. Dawson's read on Ackman is that he's trying to do to universities what he's done to publicly traded companies, force them to change how they do business. Ackman has only recently turned his attention toward DEI in particular and the academic world in general. Dawson describes Ackman as, quote, a master of making public companies bend to his vision and goes on to say that now he is using the same, uh, she describes it, Wall Street tactics to attack DEI. She writes that, and here I'm quoting, the billionaire broker had made a career forcing management changes in businesses, including Wendy's and J.C. Penney. 
I don't get any background on exactly what Ackman did with these companies. If you spend a little time, though, reading what he did with JCPenney, you might not think that Ackman is such an astute business guy after all. As Ruskin puts it, his bold bets were wrong almost as often as they were right. But I'll leave that to you for further research if you'd like to look into it. Whereas Ackman had once backed something known as ESG. During the pandemic, his views began to change. ESG stands for Environment, Society, and Governance. The movement is about using these three areas as criteria for sound investing. The environmental aspect is that investing should take into account such factors as climate impact, pollution, and conservation. The social part is concerned with investing in companies that have ethical practices and are socially aware, which is going to include things like diversity and social justice. Governance has to do with accountability and transparency. It's this last part that I think pertains particularly to our discussion today. As I say, Ackman was once on board for these criteria. One of the things that seemed to have changed his mind is what he saw as the difference between the two responses by universities to, on the one hand, the October 7th attack, and on the other hand, the killing of George Floyd. Ackman saw this contrast as indicative of what he thought to be hypocrisy. According to Rostkin, he came to see DEI, again, diversity, equality, and inclusion, as unhealthy and, and this is strange, the root cause of anti-Semitism. You should know that the article from which I'm quoting is the result of many hours of interviews with Ackman. An obvious problem here is that this idea that DEI is the root of anti-Semitism seems kind of problematic, uh, as in, didn't anti-Semitism exist long before DEI? So maybe what he actually said was something like a root cause of anti-Semitism. I'm not sure that actually works or makes any sense either, But in any case, the idea that DEI is the root of anti-Semitism is clearly just incorrect. Perhaps the charge is that in this particular case, DEI had made students more attuned to wrongs done on the basis of color or sexual orientation than on the basis of anti-Semitism. There's probably some truth in that. Moreover, if you divide the world into colonies and colonizers, the oppressed and the oppressors, then one could at least understand how such a narrative might make one more sympathetic to the Palestinians. But here, of course, I'm only trying to provide just enough information to go on to make the point that I want to make, which is something beyond these. So here's the point I'm trying to make. As a billionaire, Ackman is likely used to getting his way most of the time. I mentioned before that he gave $50 million to Harvard. Alas, big donors are both a blessing and a curse. Schools with gigantic endowments like Harvard would never be so flush were it not for these big donors. Put another way, it is inconceivable that universities in the U.S. could be so wealthy apart from these big gifts, which often come from alumni. So that's the blessing part. 
The curse is that these big donors want a lot in return. Here's an example. Back in 2002, what had been called Northwestern University Medical School suddenly became the Feinberg School of Medicine. And that's because they had received a donation of $75 million from the Joseph and Bessie Feinberg Foundation. Dwoskin claims that Ackman is, like many financial elites, in seeing himself as a moderate rather than a culture warrior. She quotes Sam Lesson, a former Facebook executive, as saying that Ackman, and now I'm quoting here, has this weird resonance because people are like, he's basically right, even if no one in a real position of power will say it out loud. So basically his idea is that Ackman is finally coming along and saying what needs to be said. What I find really interesting is that Ackman says he's only interested in having a robust debate on his view, we're not having that debate. Here I want to say that if what's at stake is genuine and honest debate, then bring it on. Debate, though, is about constructing arguments. It's not about taking one side or the other. It's actually figuring out which one is right on the basis of evidence. Dwoskin, I think, correctly focuses in on what one of Ackman's friends says about him. Bill has always been Mr. Fix-It, the guy who's always wanting to fix problems. I can't help but chuckle here. That's such a guy thing to want to be Mr. Fix-It, the guy who has the solution to all of life's problems. Dwoskin writes that this self-appointed Mr. Fix-It tendency became the hallmark of Ackman's career. She quotes him as saying, I watched, in this case, the other board members make mistake after mistake after mistake. His solution to the problem was he and others just went and bought the company. Now, that's maybe a great business strategy. I don't really know. But doesn't really work in the academic world. It's not like you can look at Harvard and think, you know, I think I'll just buy it and you know, radically reorganize the whole thing. Because, of course, you can't buy any university or college. The most you can do is give money and make demands. But the problem here is, where did Mr. Ackman get his PhD? Oh, that's right, he doesn't have one. What are his credentials in higher education? Well, he's been on the board of trustees. If you're on a college board, you clearly get some idea of what's going on. Though, if you remember, it was some of the trustees who thought that because we taught 12 hours a week, that we had a 12-hour-a-week job. Although Ackman says he wants debate, his colleagues characterize him as the kind of guy who, and this is from someone uh, that he appointed named Keith Creel, who, once he decides what's right, he doesn't back down. Hmm, that's not necessarily such a good thing for a debate. Interestingly enough, the way Ackman operates is not to everyone's taste in the business world. One of his rivals, Carl Icken, says that he would rather hang out with drug dealers and prostitutes than with Ackman. But Creel gets at the real problem. He says, he's a guy who thinks that if the right thing isn't being done, he's going to do it, whether it makes people uncomfortable or not. But the person who really gets at the problem with Ackman is one of his former classmates, Paul Barriott is the deputy director of the Stern Center for Business and Human Rights at New York University, and here's what he writes. 
When he is building a company that he's bought stock in, at least he owns a piece of the company. But when you go out in the broader world and start telling institutions that you don't have an ownership stake in how to behave properly, when you take on complex multidimensional issues like race in higher education, all you're really saying is, I'm a really rich guy. I've got access to communications technology, and I've got no shame. From my vantage point, that's about as accurate a statement as one can make. The sorts of things one might be able to do in the business world, not all of them good, by the way, are not the same sorts of things you can do in academia. Even though, as we've discussed in the previous episode, there is a clear hierarchy in academia, it doesn't operate in such a way that someone can just come in and change everything. I suspect that this is one of the many things that Governor Ron DeSantis is learning about New College in Florida. The transition he's envisioning is going to be very rough, and that's assuming it even works at all. So with that, we'll need to end. Please don't think that I'm against an actual debate or an actual discussion about academia. I'm highly in favor of such a debate. In fact, I think it's really long overdue. But my point here is simply, I want an actual debate, not just some rich guy telling the world how things should run.